0: How we've ended up in this place where we've lost so much confidence about ourselves and feel like America is adrift or is unmoored is a false story that is being told by bad actors, including Rupert Murdoch and and others who don't have America's interests at heart. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, right? I mean, we have to unlearn and create this new language and this new discourse that helps free us from all this right-wing negativity and pessimism that's rattling around in our heads.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Simon Rosenberg. When he was last on my podcast, he was running NDN slash New Policy Institute. He's since made himself into a successful political commentator on the Substack platform. Simon set himself apart from most other pundits in the run-up to the 2022 midterms, correctly saying there would be no big red wave. So we had a good conversation about what he's up to now with his Hopium Chronicles, and his plans for a book that breaks the mold by being positive about the Democratic Party and our country. I think it's a very good episode, and you should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Simon Rosenberg of Hopium Chronicles. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Simon, welcome back. I refer any listeners to an earlier interview I did with you back in 2017, where we went through your biography in great detail and had a very good discussion. It's still worth listening to. And so let's just go from there. Sure. I know you made a big transition in your life. Yeah, let's ending do that. NDN, Starting to write more and, and make a pivot.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and I do want to say thank you for that last interview. I can't believe it was six years ago. Your format of asking people to go back into their story a little bit is is not usually how these things go, and so it was really an interesting discussion. And just sort of to update from that interview, Tom Bonnier and I and Joe Trippi and a few other people were pretty convinced based on the data that this was going to be a close competitive election and not a wave election. I went to war, basically, with the D.C. establishment and the polling industrial complex a little bit. And these were people I've worked with for 30 years and and respect and admire. And at the end, there became – when the red wave returned, the red wave was the story of the election in the spring of 2022. And then we sort of pushed that back, and it became close competitive election based on the data. But then the red wave returned, and it returned with a vengeance – And then some of my dear friends began mocking me for sticking to my guns on the data. And I just became alarmed at how complicit I think the the national media has become in pushing Republican and right-wing memes into our discourse every day. And I became sort of more convinced that the poisoning of our discourse through a variety of ways, through social media, through outside foreign governments intervening, through the right wing noise machine that had become a crisis for the country. And it has been a crisis for a while, but I just lived it in a more intense way where I was saying the sky was blue. And there were all these other people saying the sky was red. And I couldn't believe that they were saying the sky was red. And in this age of Trump and everything that's going on, I became alarmed. Frankly, I grew up as a TV news producer and writer. I grew up in the business. I worked for ABC News as a young guy. And so I felt like I had to change what I was doing, that I had to be able to do more. I had to fight in new and more compelling ways. I had to myself experiment with new media forms, particularly given that Twitter had been my main way of engaging and that was being taken away from all of us. And so I shut my organization down, which was a 501C4 and C3, which had very significantly restrained my speech because of the tax status. And I moved to Stubstack, which I felt was an important part of a, a new set of media tools that we had had to try to improve our daily discourse. And so I started this thing called Hopium Chronicles. And Hopium was what I was accused of smoking several times by prominent, prominent commentators. And I've used it as a way, and I describe it as that it's hope with a plan, right? Is that we didn't just hope the election was going to get better in 2022. We went to work, and we changed the future. And I think one of the things I've learned is there are millions of Americans who are getting up every week and putting their head down and making phone calls and texting and writing postcards and donating money and canvassing to save their democracy. I'm sort of doing a lot of work with these grassroots groups all over the country, and it's been one of the most enjoyable and rewarding political journeys that I've ever been on because I'm surrounded every day by... Lots of proud patriots who love their country and who are fighting like me in new and different ways. And so that's a a long answer to your short question. But you can follow me on Hopium Chronicles. It's free. It's on Substack. I love Substack. It's an amazing
1: new platform for all of us. And I'm having a lot of fun.
0: And I think we're making a difference.
1: One question about Hopium and Substack. I subscribed to it recently and it asked me for money. You said it was free. I. Paid 45 bucks a year for your opinion. And (laughs) I was glad to. My question is Can Substack be part of making a living when you consider that, you know, those various contributor levels? And how does that work out with a relatively decently sized following?
0: Yeah. I mean, part of the power of Substack, I didn't go there willy nilly, right? I didn't just sort of, you know, I I researched and I tried to figure out what I was going to do. My organization had was aging and it was time it had done its thing and I needed to do something else. And, and part of what I talked about in this interview I did with Ron Brandstein was that I also felt that NDN was set up in the 1990s to achieve a certain set of things. And to a great degree, those things were achieved. I think more nonprofits should probably go away after they've accomplished their core mission. And I felt like the Democratic Party and the theory of NDN in the nineteen nineties we're now facing new challenges. And the challenges we faced then were very different than the challenges we face today. And I felt like we are entering a new political era. We called it the post-Cold War era. I call it the age of globalization, which really came about after the Cold War. And I think we're entering a new political age that is the next political age. And I felt like NDN was built for the last one. And I needed to reinvent my work to sort of more orient on these coming challenges. And the three most primary that I talk about are climate change, the weakening of democracy here and all around the world and the challenges to democracy. And and then third is this media challenge that we have and the discourse challenge, which I think is far more severe than we all sort of acknowledge every day. And so Substack, I had friends who were on Substack. I had one particular friend who's been very successful on it and he really recruited me and sort of walked me through how it all works and you know yes you can make a living on it there are people who make millions of dollars a year on substack the high performers like heather cox richardson and i you know this year i will be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars you know which is enough for me to justify this given the other things i could be doing right And, and to make a living but Substack is super writer-friendly. I mean, they take 10% off the top. The money gets sent to you within two or three days. There's no float. And it's just very simple. And the back end is really easy to use. I mean, it's super easy and powerful system. And so I've been very pleased with it. I've gotten to know the CEO of the company and the people that work there. They're also, when you have issues, they're very responsive. As writers, they, they service their community really well. So It's been great. I also think what's important about it to recognize is that even though it began as a home for writers and academics in some ways, it's becoming much more of a multimedia platform. I mean, it has podcasting built into it. It's going to have live video feeds like YouTube, and the video piece of it is actually pretty powerful. So it's becoming a very robust multimedia platform that I think will become a really major part of our collective communications ecosystem in the coming years.
1: It's a distinct choice to go down that road rather than become an opinion journalist attached to something like the New York Times or New York Magazine or something like that. What what do you think are the advantages and disadvantages?
0: It's interesting you say that because in D.C., Substack is still kind of not a thing. I didn't really understand until I got into it how big the Substack community is in the United States. I mean, it's huge. There's tens of millions of people who use Substack or subscribe to Substack in the US alone, but it's also a global platform. I mean, I have thousands of followers outside the US. I chose this route because I wanted the freedom to do whatever I wanted. I've been running an organization for a long time. I haven't worked for anybody in a really long time. I'm not really good at it. I One of the reasons I started my own organization, as I learned a long time ago, I'm not really good at working for other people. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. And I've enjoyed the freedom where I have no editor, I have no one telling me what to do, I have no restraints on my speech. It's a great question that you've asked, because I think that part of my theory was that because we're entering a new age, because the threats, particularly of this challenge to democracy and sort of the media complicity to normalizing the extremism that we've seen emerge in one of our two political parties, that I actually needed to go outside of the mainstream, I needed to be able to have the freedom to create new language and new discourse and new ways of understanding about what was happening because the media has been failing us. And the primary failure, if I can articulate this, and I haven't really talked about this very much, is that the primary failure is the normalization of their extremism. That's the fundamental problem that we have in our domestic discourse right now, which is that one of our two political parties is is trying to take our democracy down. And there is a daily, extraordinary, media-wide effort to sort of normalize them so that the he said, she said, Republican, Democrat, two sides of the coin sort of framework of our politics is maintained as a columnist just recently wrote, I'll just think of her name in a second. It isn't the obligation of the media to tell both sides. It's the obligation of media to tell the truth. And as we saw with the red wave story, there is an ongoing collective failure. I mean, to believe the red wave was coming, you had to believe that the American people were just going to ignore the fact that the Republicans had ended Roe and had attacked our Capitol on January 6th. And that the process of believing a red wave was possible was a manifestation of this normalization process that goes on literally every day. Just by treating the Republicans as a normal American political party and Donald Trump as a normal Republican candidate for president, you're distorting reality. (laughs) I felt that I wasn't going to be effective. And so I wanted to create a place where I could help go build new language, new understandings and new realities that were struggling to get into the mainstream. And somebody wrote about this on my Substack today or on Twitter, that the only accountability that happened in the media for everyone getting the election wrong, like the worst election political coverage failure in modern American history, because the red wave wasn't a mistake. It was the opposite of what happened. Right? It wasn't just an error. It was the opposite of what happened. The only accountability was Nate Silver eventually getting severed from 538 and ABC News, which I have a feeling happened just because he's just a difficult person to work with more than anything else. But the rest of the media, I mean, there's been no sort of reflection you're seeing in the poll coverage now. You know, here we are, like the poll coverage in the last few weeks has felt very red wavy. So what I'm doing is not only am I doing my Substack, but I'm doing every podcast I possibly can. I'm speaking to two to three groups a week all over the country. I'm trying to really foster to give us permission. I want to give people permission to do two things. I want to give people permission to love their country again, which I think has been denied to us by decades of right wing shit that they're throwing into our discourse every day where they want us to feel bad about our country, our democracy, our leaders, our institutions, each other, everything. Right. And I want to give people permission, To, as Heather Cox Richardson calls it, you know, to sort of experience a, a, a democratic awakening in themselves and the sense that they have the ability through new tools and new digital tools to participate in strengthening their democracy and fighting for the future in ways that was hard even five or six years ago. There's been a revolution in tools in the last few years, which has lowered the barrier to entry for people. And there's been an explosion of citizen activism which has been so exciting, actually, to be part of this. It's what every young political operative would ever want to see, right? (laughs) Or anyone who cares about their democracy. And I couldn't do that if I was writing as a a a twice-a-week column for the Washington Post or something. I just couldn't do what I'm doing.
1: There's so much in that answer. There's lots of directions I can go, but I want to stick with a thread about your relationship to Substack because it seems to me like that if you're out talking, you're on MSNBC, you're making speeches, you're getting some visibility in a variety of different ways, trying to do what you think is right for the country, you're going to see that to some degree reflected in people subscribing. Do you have like a graph that you follow? As an entre- political entrepreneur, you're building up yeah. a relationship between you and your audience in a way that you can track in a very more individualized way than you can in other media? Listen,
0: I think, first of all, what's important to recognize about Substack is that someone giving you their email address is a much greater commitment than following on Twitter or a lot of the ways that we engage. And so the audience, by definition, is going to be smaller because it's it's a far more intimate relationship, if you want to call it that, right? And yeah, no, the Substack has <laughs> remarkable data back end, and I get a little bit too obsessed with it, frankly. I'm hitting the numbers. I had no idea. Listen, I want to be very clear. I had no idea what I was doing when I started this, right? I, it was an instinct I had. I had done a lot of research. But you know, there's a lot of things we all do in life that we think are going to work. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. This has been far more rewarding personally rewarding for me than I ever could have imagined to be honest and I do feel though that I now have I, I, the thing that is that I have to sort of come to terms with is that I have to create content all the time and I've enjoyed it I mean I love it. it but it becomes a little bit obsessive right I mean it's you know you've got I've got to figure out a way to manage my relationship to my community to in a slightly more healthy way, to be honest. But it's also because I'm in startup mode. I I want this thing to work. And I'm also just experimenting and trying new stuff. I mean, I get enormous feedback from people and I ask for feedback. And we've had a series of times when I've asked for open feedback. I've gotten hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments from people. And people in Substack in the community are not shy. I mean, if there's things they don't like, they tell me I mean, one of the things I always loved about Twitter when Twitter was doing its thing and and was strong was that I was getting unbelievable amount of feedback daily from people. people were sending me stories. it It became a way for me to stay in touch with large numbers of people in a very efficient way. Substack is a similar thing. People are sending me stuff all the time. i'm I'm getting articles that I hadn't seen. And there is a real sense of community. If you're a paid subscriber, you can come in and be part of Discourse. And, and if you're not, you, I, that's a subscription thing because it would just be too unwieldy otherwise. I would love to when conversations begin or what happened just even last week, right? I asked people to explain to the community how they were involved in Virginia and helping in the Virginia race that's happening. And there were dozens and dozens of comments from people saying, this is what I'm doing if you want to help. And so the community shared their experiences with others in the community. And this is the, this is the ma- central reason I went to Substack, right? Was this, what I saw in other Substacks is the ability of the community to educate itself, right? And that it wasn't all reliant on me and my content, that there were very, very smart people and wonderful people And that the power was creating this sense that we're all in this together, creating a sense of community, right? Cotton ran a common mission, which is saving democracy and making sure freedom and democracy prevail here and everywhere, sort of the way I talk about it. And what's been amazing is to watch how people have learned from each other. And I'm still trying to figure out ways to manage that better. Like my one big thing I would like to do more of is to create more of a, cuz i think that the, the comments feature at substack is good without being amazing and i have to i want to work on this if you've noticed in recent weeks i've sort of experimented with sort of these open things where people discuss and and the response if you notice has been amazing right when i and i ask people to do it and look people are desperate in the united states to have a healthier relationship to politics and to their country and I believe that's part of what I'm offering, right? Which is I'm respecting my audience. I'm working really hard to provide them unique and interesting content every day. There is a sense of community for those who want to do more. It's been a great experience. Honestly, I've really enjoyed this far more. It's not that this has been more successful than I thought it was going to be, is that I've enjoyed it more than I thought I would. And I feel very... I really love what I'm doing. I'm enjoying my work more than I have in a very long time, to be honest.
1: Whenever one has a relationship with an audience, there's a temptation to do the things that work with the audience, that provide the feedback. You watch how Marjorie Taylor Greene works her audience, right? that's a pretty unhealthy way.
0: This is a great question. I know where you're going with this. It's this a great question. How is this changing you? It's a, you know, so the biggest thing that happened, and the, these are very interesting questions, by the way, what I didn't know in the beginning was how much I, you know, my audience for my work in the last 20 years, 15 years has been 500 to 1,000 people in Washington, right? I mean, in essence, I was like a private think tank. I had no interest in gaining a big audience. It wasn't important to me, to my work. I had direct relationship to senators, people in the administration, journalists, right? So I was able to do everything I wanted to do with a very small audience. And what I realized is that when I first started the Substack and I started Hopium, I started writing, people didn't have any idea what I was talking about. (laughs) Because I had been writing and communicating to this very narrow audience of that had enormous understanding of what was happening. And I realized like three weeks in that many of the people who were subscribing to Hopium didn't have Washington Post and New York Times subscriptions. And so I, I couldn't just link to the New York Times or the Washington Post. I've had to really change substantially my language, who I'm writing for, who my audience is. I feel like I've gotten a pretty good handle. Sometimes I still get feedback that I'm sort of using DC language and I'm doing too much shorthand, but I'm slowing down. I'm also repeating a lot of things. I get about 60% of each email is, is opened and read. So that means 40% of my audience is not reading every uh, email, right? So I'm also repeating things more, which I think has actually been really important because I sort of will cycle back. I'll repeat some data. I'll come back to it a few days later. Also because the community is growing. Right. And so there's lots of new people. And I am very conscious that I can't just speak to the old timers. I have to recognize that a large percentage of the audience doesn't really know much about me and kind of stumbled into my community. And so I have to keep stuff simple for them, too. I can't assume that they know all the the hopium buzzwords and everything else in my buzzwords. So I'm working really, really hard every day to produce something that is both, I think, things that people are interested in, but also that challenge them. I mean, look, my economic data that I'm providing is relatively sophisticated. The... People don't, and this audience don't know how polling. Many don't know how polling works, right? And I have to explain all that. And but what's been great to me, and this is what I told people in the beginning, is I said, if you hang out here for six months, and just stay with it, right, and and just read the email every day, your understanding of politics and economics and all these things is going to be so much deeper than it was before, and you may not understand every post and every little thing. But because I'm repeating things a lot, and I'm coming back to things and sort of re-explaining them, I'm not trying to create a high degree of difficulty here. I'm not showing off. I'm really, really, really trying to talk to my audience and to be respectful that there are millions of people who want to help their country, love their country, who haven't spent their life in politics and don't know how polling works and that's okay. I mean we have to lower the barrier to entry. And so I'm tr- I'm trying to create a discourse that helps people who are just regular Americans who want to make a difference be better at that and be more informed about what they're doing. I mean I talk a lot about how I'm not here to tell you what to say. I'm here to inform you and to, and to so you're more effective at whatever it is you're going to say. I'm not telling people what they should believe or I don't provide talking points. I I provide information and knowledge and understanding from somebody who's been in the business for 30 years, more than 30 years. And and hopefully I've hit the right sort of sweet spot between producing content that people want, but also always trying to introduce new things, but not being too cutting edge. I'm very conscious that if I – flood every... I'm also conscious of length, right? I can't push too much in one day. final thing about this that was interesting to me is that when I began this, I assumed that there was going to be a lot of video. And what I learned about Substack, and I didn't really totally understand this until I was a few months into this, was that folks read Substack posts the way that I read Twitter, right? Which is they want it to be quick and easy, a two-minute, three-minute summary. And so length matters. Video is watched, but not as much as you would think. It's a lot of people are reading this because it's a quick hit and they can get a lot out of it and skim it really quickly. And so video and length, I have to be careful about not doing too much video or not relying on video too much. If it's too long, the stuff at the bottom just doesn't get read. I mean, I can tell based on clicks and everything else. And so I have to be careful conscious of length. Anyway, that was a long answer to your question.
1: It actually took care of what I was going to ask you, which was something about what kind of audience you want, because I think you said I want regular people who want to do a better job at protecting this democracy or advancing the democracy, right?
0: Yeah, I actually don't have a lot of readers in Washington. That may be the biggest surprise of all. I mean, it's like Dylan going electric, right? Like some of my old audience, that I've been talking to for 20 years is not carried over. And I've been a little surprised. I, I will be honest with you. I was a little surprised about that, um, but it's okay. You know, it's all okay. They'll come along eventually. As
1: Bill Clinton used to say, they're
0: not yet a supporter
1: of our work. So you did a service to yourself by going out on the limb against the red wave when the red wave didn't happen. That really separated you from other people, people of opinion on politics, right? That that was a, a really helpful move. What are you gonna do if the name of your newsletter is Hopium Chronicles, if you start to think this is not going to be a good year?
0: It's an interesting question. I've thought about that a lot because two parts of the answer. I wrote a piece this week, which was called We Have Work to Do on the Economy. Which was not a which was not a, a happy piece right it wasn't because I have to stick to the data I mean I at the end of the day I'm an analyst and a commentator and and my integrity is paramount not not hope and opium but my integrity is the, is paramount I'm gonna call it like I see it and I'm not gonna I it's also though in the content that I choose to develop it's usually far more on the optimistic side what I say to my own community is that, In our public communications, when we speak about politics, we should probably all be about two-thirds positive and one-third, you know, what we call contrast. That one of MAGA and the right wing's greatest strategies or most effective strategies has been to pump negative sentiment into our discourse every day. And I think part of our job as people who believe in democracy in the center-left is that we have to become more conscious about putting... Positive sentiment into our discourse every day. I think this is actually kind of a, a big collective project in the center left that we have to reject the dark pessimism of MAGA and the right. I mean, Trump is a, among the most pessimistic figures that the, the modern world has ever seen. And that pessimism is his superpower, right? Because if everything is terrible, then you need a radical solution. But when things are actually going pretty good and America is actually on the right track, I'm at the very end of a book proposal, whose working title is America the Successful, which is going to be an effort to write a book about how actually things are going really well for America. (laughs) And by all objective measures, globally, domestically, in every possible way, we're actually doing really well. And this idea that we're in decline or that we're adrift, it's actually not true. How we've ended up in this place Where we've lost so much confidence about ourselves and feel like America is adrift or is unmoored is a false story that is being told by bad actors, including Rupert Murdoch and and others who don't have America's interests at heart. It's like Stockholm syndrome, right? I mean, we have to unlearn and create this new language and this new discourse that helps free us from all this right-wing negativity and pessimism that's rattling around in our heads. When I talk, I have this exercise I do, which is, Joe Biden has been a good president, period. The country is better off, period. The Democratic Party is strong, period. No commas, no semicolons, no buts, no however, simple declarative sentences, so that we don't start bringing their arguments into our own discourse every day. They're really good at it. We don't need to do their work for them, right? And so I think there's a deeper thing going on here where I become convinced. I know to some people this may sound a little bonkers, and I'm okay with that, but I've been a communications and political professional since 1985, (laughs) almost 40 years now. I've produced primetime television shows. I mean, I've grown up in this media world. There is something deeply wrong in America today with our discourse. And I'm I'm gonna be fighting that. And regardless of how what the circumstances are, that's a that's a fight that's bigger than any of the daily stuff. However, to your point, right, if Joe Biden is losing this next election, which I don't think is going to happen, right, you know, how I'm gonna manage this, you know, what I choose in my daily writing is I choose to to highlight the things that I think are working well and that basic exercise of us spending more time on things that are working well than dwelling in the negative. I joke on my subsect that I don't want to ever see another picture of Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Like we've all seen enough pictures of her. Why do we dwell in these ugly things? Why the fascination that's like rubbernecking when a car accident happens, we have to unlearn that as a country. There's something deeper that I'm trying to get at here so there's always going to be remarkable and positive things happening in this remarkable country, in this great country. And I'm just choosing to spend my time with that than spending my time in other places. And I will be doing that. But I also, as I wrote this week, and if you go watch my presentation called "With Democrats Things Get Better, I I have a whole section showing that Biden has been dramatically underperforming on the economy, going all the way back to the election.
1: You mean underperforming in with
0: voters, with voters that the perception of his performance on the economy has been terrible since the election. It's he's entered the presidency in a deficit. And what I say is that I think the Biden world, which is now spending a lot of money talking about his economic agenda. The first piece I wrote that they needed to spend 50 million dollars promoting his economic agenda was two years ago. This issue of his relation to the economy is a huge problem, but but it's also a problem that can be solved. And that's what I'm focusing on is how to solve it, not on the fact that it is a problem. And as I always say, I think all the problems that Joe Biden has right now, they're pretty manageable and solvable in a political world. Trump's problems, I don't know how you put lipstick on that pig. His political problems are not solvable. And what I'm trying to teach people in my Substack is that process of looking at a political problem and then trying to solve it, right? As opposed to looking at a political problem and getting overwhelmed by it and living in the darkness and the the sense of failure. The whole process of Hopium is about, yes, we can. We can win elections, we can fix things, we can be strong, we can be good, we can be successful. We don't have to allow their attacks on us to define who we are. And I think that everything I'm doing is deeply fact-based and, and deeply data-driven. And let's hope, <laughs> let's keep our fingers crossed that I'm able to continue to do what I'm doing and have the data on my side, right? And, and I don't, I've i thought about what your question is, and I think so far it hasn't been an issue because everything is going well. And, you know, where that, you know, where I would have run into some challenges on that, for example, is if hoping had been up during the Afghanistan withdrawal, right? That would have been, that was a hard thing to defend. But you know, Biden's been a good president. It's pretty easy to defend this guy. I mean, they've done a good job. He's been a good president. The country is better off today. It's pretty clear to me. His foreign policy has been successful. His domestic policy has been successful. I'm optimistic about, I don't feel like in any moment I am pushing data or my analysis past where the data is telling us. I don't think I ever leave that place of integrity. And I'm never going to, by the way.
1: When, when I talk to friends and colleagues and acquaintances about Biden, many people are willing to accept that Biden is a good president, as I am. Uh, what worries people more is can he be a good candidate? And that's where his you know, lack of verbal acuity and, and age and other related things Scare people who feel like the stakes are so high. How do you deal with that aspect of it?
0: Yeah, look, every candidate has a balance sheet, right? Has assets and liabilities. And Biden's assets dramatically outweighs liabilities, but he has liabilities. <laughs> what I like to say about age, and as those of us who are formerly young understand perhaps better than younger people, is that with age, not only do you lose a step and get a little slower. And sometimes words don't come out exactly the way you thought they were going to. But you also gain wisdom and experience and capabilities. And I think that it's impossible to unpack Biden's success from his age. He's been successful because of his age. He's been successful because he's the most experienced person to ever go into the presidency. And during a time of insurrection and domestic unrest of COVID, of Arguably, the biggest threat to the West with the war in Ukraine that we've seen since the 1940s. Perhaps we are blessed and lucky to have somebody with his experience and wisdom in that job at this time. I think the campaign next year, you know, we were able to do really well in this last election without Biden campaigning. We've been winning in these special elections all over the country without Biden campaigning. And so the Democratic Party, since Dobbs happened in the spring of 2022, has been wildly successful in election after election all across the country without Joe Biden campaigning. And so it's possible that the dynamics and the fear and opposition to MAGA, which is the most important force in our politics today, creates a structure where even somebody who, let's say, is not the best campaigner in the history of the world, right, will still be successful because he's not running as a candidate. He's running as a president who has this other way of communicating, which is through the White House and through his presidency itself. And so it's possible that Joe Biden, the campaigner, will be a smaller part of the campaign than usual because he's an incumbent president. I'm sanguine about it. I mean, it's obviously, I think it would be better for all of us if he had he was at a point in his life where he had Obama or Clinton's rhetorical skills, but he doesn't. And what he has is arguably much more important, which is that he's been a good president. At the end of the day, to me, when you are an incumbent, you have to cross this fundamental threshold, right? Which is, did you do a good job? And I think that he's going to be able to say and convince, and because I, I think it's true, I think that... He has the ace in the hole in this election, which is that you know he's been a good president, the country's better off, and we're going to have a powerful story to tell during the election next year.
1: I could probably talk politics with you for a lot more than 10 minutes, but let me ask you that, for that reason about one thing that you mentioned earlier on and when you're talking about what you're doing, which was you said you're building a relationship with groups in the progressive ecosystem, more or less. Tell me about like who and what, and a little more about that, because I follow those groups pretty closely.
0: Look, there's been an enormous change in our politics in the the era of Trump. And the combination of people who were scarred by Hillary's loss, COVID, which then brought Zoom-based political organizing where the barrier to entry for an average person to be able to communicate and learn about politics. I mean, if you wanted to hear Simon speak in the old days, I would have to fly into your town. Someone would have to put an event on and you'd have to go spend three hours driving there and everything else. Now you can hear Simon on Zoom live while you're making dinner. So Zoom and the Zoomification of politics has actually been a, a revolutionary thing. And it's far more important that people understand because it dramatically lowered the barrier to entry for meaningful political engagement, for enormous numbers of people all around the country who are now able to, you know, do a weekly Zoom with whatever group they're part of and learn and connect with powerful people and the exclusivity part of the business, where you know we're the party and we have special power and you have to become a party member in essence, that's all been blown to pieces, right, in a very kind of small D democratic way, and what spawned during COVID i'd like to sort of use the analogy it's like imagine if every book club in america went virtual and then developed a political arm and the book club then invited their friends from college or colleagues and all across the country these groups sprung up these grassroots groups sprung up um that were self-organized and with no one in charge and they grown into something that's massive. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people now doing their political work through these brand new organizations that didn't exist a decade ago that are often pro-democracy in their language. They don't really use the term progressive. Interestingly enough, it's usually Democrat or pro-democracy because they can be partisan, right? They don't have to be in the way that my Hopium site, I can just be raw. I can raise money. I can be a partisan. These groups are partisan organizations.
1: So who are you thinking about concretely? Who's on that list? Yeah. So there's a group I'm
0: speaking to next week with Robert Hubble, who's a Substack kind of superstar called Big Tent USA. They're a national organization. The week after that, I'm speaking to a group called Force Multiplier, which is based in Boston. I'm speaking to a consortium of the California Indivisible groups in later October. I'm speaking to a a group that's based in southern New Mexico in October. I'm speaking to a pro-democracy group that's based in Florida on October 10th. I'm speaking to another group in Minnesota in October. I mean, this is just the next few weeks, right? And, And so these are organizations that are not part of the party, they're not part of the traditional organizations in the progressive movement. Many of them are self-organized. It's very Tocquevillian, And part of the power of them is that they're citizen-led. They're not part of anything else. They're their own thing. And that ownership by the leaders of the group and by the community of that group is very important, right? Because they can do whatever they want. They're not obeying to other folks, you know?
1: That kind of speaking tour in the past, w- one the question you would get would be, okay, you ran for party chair once, you running for that again? What are you running for? Is there something beyond the substack and wanting to be part of the democracy movement that's motivating you to get out there and circulate among the politically minded?
0: You know, I'm terrified that we're going to lose our country.
1: Yeah, I'm with you there.
0: That's why I'm doing this. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm glad you're doing that. That is really good reason and a necessary thing right now
0: listen what i tell people is you have to channel all this anxiety you have into action so i'm doing it you know <laughs> with you know <laughs> that's a former have this podcast <laughs> i know and, and it's why i accept virtually every speaking you know engagement that i get i accept every podcast invitation i because I, I have this sense of urgency and if i don't do this my anxiety does sometimes overwhelm me right and so the way that i'm Channeling my own fear and anxiety about what's happening is I'm working harder than I've worked in a very long time and I'm busting my ass. And I'm also having a lot of fun doing it, which is important. And I feel like I'm creating something really important and powerful. I've always told people that I think this project I'm on will last for two years, whether it goes past the 2024 election, I don't know. This moment I have where I'm seen as the guy that got the election right. I've been in this business for a long time. I've had wins and losses. You know, I, I tell my kids I'm like a character actor who is on a hit show. I got to write it. But I, I, I want to just be very clear that I understand at this moment I have certain things that I have the ability to do, and I have to go do them. And I also recognize this is not permanent. But I have this opportunity now to reach people, to connect to people. It's working. And so I have to keep going, right? Because what we're really doing together is that we're going through this process of trying to more effectively be big citizens, people who love our country, proud patriots. I think the way that we defeat MAGA, at the end of the day, I've become convinced, is that it's not up to Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. It's up to all of us. It's up to us. We prevented MAGA from winning in 2022. There wasn't person. It wasn't the Democratic Party. The American people did that. And I think we're at this remarkable moment in our history where a combination of things, including these new tools that allow far more people to be involved meaningfully in the political system, that there is this awakening, as Heather Cox Richardson talks about it. And I see it. (laughs) I'm living it. I'm in it every day. And it's so exciting. The counter to the fact that we're in this, there are democracies under threat, is that the American people are fighting really hard to make sure that their democracy doesn't slip away. And it's so gratifying to be in community with people that are getting up every day and have made this their mission at this part in their lives. Many people didn't think they... It's amazing how often on my Substack, people, right? Like, I didn't think in my semi-retirement or my retirement, I would be spending 40 hours a week making phone calls and writing postcards, right? But that's where we are. If it didn't happen, we would be effed in a big way, right? I mean, because, you know, the red wave didn't come because of all these people and the work that they did on the election, the money that they, that they gave. And so we're at a very special moment in our history where... You know, the biggest idea in the world in the last 300 years has been the idea of America, right? It's the most important and the biggest idea. And the idea of America, which began in the 18th century, was then exported to the rest of the world by FDR and then by Bill Clinton uh, and, and others to build this global system that we have today. And this global system today has created a golden age in human history. There's never been a time in all of human history where people have as much opportunity to pursue their dreams as today, here and all around the world. Poverty has plummeted. Trade has exploded. More people have lived under democracies in recent years than any time in human history. And what's important for people to recognize is that that didn't just happen, right? The Democratic Party did that. We did that. We created that world. We've created a golden age in human history. We're the most consequential political movement in all of human history. We built this global order and created a world where democracy and freedom prevailed over autocracy and colonialism and everything else. And that world is now under threat in unprecedented ways. And what's remarkable to me is that there are millions and millions of people getting up and saying, fuck it, I'm just not going to let that all slip away from me. And so it's my job to help them. The way we win is through them. It's not through the DNC or through any traditional political organization. It's the American people are rising up and saying, you know, this is something really important and we're going to fight for it. I want to do what I can to give them the tools and the weapons and the information to be successful.
1: So that is what you would get if you would subscribe to the Hopium Chronicles. Is there a question I should ask you that I didn't?
0: Oh, I have to go. But I think, no, I mean, first of all, I'm glad you're healthy and it's great to see you again. Thank you for what you do you know, we're all in this together. And it's critical that we support one another and lift each other up because Trump is going to be the nominee. If he wins the election in 2024, our democracy will be over. It'll be the end of American democracy. And it will potentially strike a, a, a fatal blow to the global democracy movement itself. The consequences of his prevailing next year are unimaginable. As much as we should be really proud of all the work that we've done, we've had three very successful elections in a row as Democrats. 2023 is going really well for us, right? We're overperforming again, expectations. But we've got a lot of work ahead of us. And it starts with Virginia. Early voting starts this week. People should get involved in the Virginia race in any way they can and help out, donate, make phone calls, canvas, whatever you can do we got to win there it's really really important and then next year it's all hands on deck right we got to leave it all on the playing field again and i know that people are tired and i know that people are tired the anxiety and the fear that they have can be overwhelming but the way we all have to collectively deal with that is by doing the work that is needed and what's great now is that if you live in california you can make phone calls into virginia you know you now you can text people in virginia And we know this stuff works. I mean, one of the reasons our turnout has been so enormous in recent elections is that millions of people can make take actions into the battleground states beyond just giving money, right? It used to be you could only just give money, but now you can export your labor, right, to places and elections that really matter. And it's one of the reasons we're seeing Democrats performing at the upper end of what's possible, because we have an unprecedented grassroots community who are just going to work and kicking ass. And so it's very exciting. It's terrifying, but it's also really exciting. So if you come to Hopium Chronicles, come because you are a proud patriot who loves your country and wants to figure out how you can be most effective in channeling that love of country into actions that are going to save our democracy.
1: Simon, thanks so much for taking the time.
0: Okay, man. Thank you for the opportunity. And appreciate all that you do.
1: That was Simon. He is at HopiumChronicles.com This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group